0: Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning Marjorie,
1: December! I can't believe we've made it! Another year! I love this time of year.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm much more settled. Back when we change from sort of the light starts fading and the days get shorter, I get a bit grumpy. But by the time we're into December, I'm kind of
1: more settled into it and I'm happy to cozy down in front of the fire. I'm through Thanksgiving. November's always about Thanksgiving for me. So I'm through Thanksgiving and now I have the freedom and the kind of mild panic of getting ready for Christmas. Thinking about, you know, I, mostly for us it's about music and which concerts we want to see and where the kids will be singing and just bits and pieces more than I anything huge at this stage?
0: Yeah, I like getting the tree up quite early and I'll be getting my eldest one back from university from his first term at uni so we'll try and do some Christmassy things you know maybe go and see one of the light shows or try and get to one of the Christmas shows at the theatre but generally it's just about trying to slow down a little bit.
1: Tell me you're not going to the Panto. How do you feel about the Panto? No, I'm not a Panto fan. (laughs) If any of you out there know anything about the Panto and can explain to me a long suffering american in scotland what's going on and then maybe i would try it again this year
0: we divide <laughs> down a very sharp line in our house we've got three panto likers and two panto really i'd rather do something else
1: so do the panto deniers win do the three get left out and not be able to go to their thing uh, we could normally
0: compromise and we go to the lyceum theaters christmas show That's
1: not Panto. Exactly. I think my problem is the only time I ever went to the Panto was with another American. We were relatively fresh off the boat. We'd taken our kids to it. I think we just sat there thinking, what is actually going on here? We have no idea. Everybody else was loving it. If I'd gone with a British person who could have talked me through it, it might have changed everything. So if there's someone out there willing to take me to the Panto, let me know. But I've never been back. But I'd love to be converted. I feel that this might be my year. I
0: think that's a dangerous road
1: to go down <laughs> <laughs> check back in with us next december to see where i stand on the penton. So this month though, it's exciting. Our theme for open book across all our groups is feast. So we're looking at all the ways that we might feast, whether that's you know, around a table and the other kinds of I think of feasts of music or feasts of friends and family. Not necessarily just the food kind, although I think we'll be talking about that today. And it's our last month for our terrific writer in residence, Heather Parry. So we're gonna read her story today. Join
0: us at our open book celebration event on the 14th of December, where we'll just be t- taking a moment to say thank you to Heather and to celebrate her residency with us. It's online. You can book through Eventbrite and get details on our website, openbookreading.com. You'll get a chance to ask Heather any questions about her stories that you might have and hear her read. And I'm really looking forward to it. But we're going to start with a poem today, just before we get to Heather's story, by Emily Dickinson. Shall I read it and start us off? Yeah, thanks. Who goes to dine? must take his feast. Who goes to dine must take his feast, or find the banquet mean. The table is not laid without till it is laid within. For pattern is the mind bestowed, that imitating her, our most ignoble services
1: exhibit worthier. We love that idea in in that first stanza. For those of you listening, it's an eight-line poem and broken into two four-line stanzas. But I love that idea that you have to take your own feast. I don't think she means bringing the sides or bringing the the wine.
0: I think it's that idea that we sometimes hear, you know, love yourself and then you can love
1: others. Feast on yourself and then you can feast outside yourself. (laughs) I was thinking something probably less worthy than that, but more... The idea that you must get your chat together, you must bring your best self. You know, if you turn up to a feast or a house or a dinner and expect everyone to entertain you, it doesn't usually go very well. But if, you know, if you're kind of there and prepared to engage and, you know, put yourself forward, then quite often it's a gorgeous night. I think this poem kind of encaptures that, doesn't it? That
0: idea of you bring what you're best at, you bring the
1: best thing that you can do. Yeah, and I think that's probably true in life, right? It's not just about the feast. I mean, here the feast could be life. You know, if you turn up and expect the world to give you everything on a plate without you having to do anything, you're absolutely sure to be disappointed, I think. You get in, as that old adage, of you know, you get out of things as much as you put into them.
0: And what about the second stanza? That's more difficult in my eyes.
1: I think that idea that, you know, again we're only worthy based on what we the services we provide to others in terms of and i i do find it much harder
0: for pattern is the mind bestowed i'm not sure is that habit
1: is that you know yeah and i wondered if you get into a pattern of of that kind of generosity or or a pattern of that kind of not ungenerosity or the opposite yeah and i think i think it's about that thing of turning up Being, as you say, your best self. And then making that your pattern. And therefore you put your most worthy self forward. It's funny, worthy is a word that's really gone out of fashion, hasn't it? Yeah. It's almost pejorative to say, oh, she's really worthy. Yeah, or it's not being so worthy. So seeing it here, I'm sure that's not what she meant, since it will have not gone out of fashion back then. But I think the idea of being worthier by putting ourselves forward and putting ourselves out there properly is a good thing.
0: And the lovely thing about this poem is if you want to search it up, you can find the handwritten manuscript version of it in Emily Dickinson's own writing. When I was I was looking for it yesterday, I uh, stumbled across it and it was just really something lovely
1: about seeing it in the poet's handwriting. Although I should say, I know this is sacrilege to say it's so plug your ears if you're an Emily Dickinson lover. It looks like the, like she wrote it on the back of a shopping list. <laughs> it looks the kind of scribble <laughs> that I might put on a corner of a piece of paper and then find it later and think, oh, oh I quite like that.
0: Do you not often say that's how your best poems come? <laughs> Pulling the car over into a (laughs) lay-by and digging in your bag for a receipt and a pencil to scribble down something that's just come to you immediately.
1: Yeah, usually on the notes function of my my phone and then I'll sort of months later think, what is that? Oh, oh, that's absolutely terrible. Or (laughs) every once in a while, very rarely these days, I think, oh, there's something in that. Maybe I'll save that. So it looks like that Emily Dickinson's done that all those years ago. Shall we move on to Heather's story? Will I get us started? Please. To table. Evie won't eat figs. Evie won't eat figs. Evie won't eat figs. Evie won't eat figs. He repeated it as he twittered around the table, putting name cards down and switching them around, moving a candlestick here and then back to there, repeating the words again and again so he might not lose them so they might not fall out of his head somewhere between the table and the magnet-mounted notepad on the fridge. Evie won't eat figs. He knew all the rest by heart. James hated sausage, Emilia was against parsnips, and none of the young ones would countenance anything containing mincemeat, neither fruit nor flesh. It may have been his first time cooking— But the last two years hadn't faded the memories of all the dinner table arguments before. All the turned over plates and the crying fits and later the slammed teenage doors. There could be none of that now. Not this year. So he added this to the list. Evie won't eat figs. And instead brought out a honeydew melon for his youngest granddaughter. So she could squish the fruit in her chunky hands and make a mess all over the cloth. Scattered around the kitchen were a whole lifetime's worth of cookbooks, oil-stained and finger-torn, and so broken in the spines that they lay open easily, inviting the reader towards one recipe or another. He had put together the day's menu from whichever pages seemed most used. Imagine someone else's finger running down the ingredients list with a knowledge of exactly where everything was. He had taken every single tin out of the cupboard before realizing that the bird's custard was in powder form in the larder, had squinted at every jar he could find before reading the scrawled note saying, cranberry sauce, big freezer, and half-erased pencil. A man at the fancy supermarket had helped him buy things he'd never even noticed in the shops before. The duck fat, and the thin, carved meats, and the tubs for the steamed puddings. When he left, flushed and a little exhausted, he noticed the man had added a bottle of champagne to his bag, and he couldn't find it listed on his receipt. It was in the fridge now, waiting for stronger hands than his to open it. The timer went. He checked his schedule. In went the pigs in blankets. But we stopped there.
0: Yeah, I just love this. I just, it so beautifully draws the picture of of the preparation and the anxiety around getting it all right and
1: bringing it all together. And I've read it a couple of times before, but even then I was choking up reading the bit about the champagne. I thought he was a man who was struggling with his memory because that phrase of Evie won't eat figs is is repeated over and over. And I was thinking he's just trying to remember, but I'm not sure that's true.
0: No, I think maybe because she's the youngest, her habits aren't the, the deepest ingrained, and he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get it wrong for her when he gets it right for everyone else. I love that phrase. Amelia was against parsnips.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I recognise that from my own family, you know, and and you don't realise how you just get round things like that and don't think about them until you've got someone new in your house. Like I've had someone staying with us for a while who's new to my family, and you know, she'll cook something, and I'll have to say, oh, actually you know the youngest doesn't like peas or oh oh that looks lovely but that child won't eat mash and i just you know because you just get on with it and as a family you kind of absorb all of that so i think in this case it reminds you that that when you're doing a meal for people and it's unusual for you to do it you have to remember all those funny things
0: yeah and that description of the cookbooks and the broken spines and the oil stained that's so familiar i mean from from my own kitchen there's definitely
1: cookbooks that are a bit torn or ones that are stuck together you know they're kind of the brownie one in my house is like, where well, the kids which recipe? And then of course they find it because it's stuck together. But yeah, I, I really recognize, and I remember that from my own childhood. You know, my mum had the Betty Crocker cookbook and that's the one she used for all her baking. And that's how I found things. I would literally work out where the book, rather than I was too lazy to go to the index and pay any attention to that sort of proper behavior. I would just kind of throw the book out and hope it opened at the Snickerdoodles recipe that she always used or whatever. And same with my grandma remember that was a way to figure out which one they were actually using. And my grandma used to always write into her cookbooks the adjustments that she would make. I don't know if you do that. You know, like I know I I use the brownie recipe, but I definitely put less flour in. But I don't think I've written that in. I should.
0: I think as time goes on and we become more reliant on technology and that maybe we'll look up a recipe rather than looking in a book for it. If it's a new thing, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes search found two cod steaks in my freezer what can I do with them and find a recipe and pull it off and if it works and everyone likes it I'll print it off and paste it into a notebook and that notebook has got lots of handwritten adjustments you know you can replace this with almond flour or to make it gluten-free or ooh, too much lime (laughs)
1: you know things like that but no I don't think I would actually write in my actual cookbooks and we're really diverting now but I think of the time that we did that lunch where we took one cookbook and three of us made each of us two of the little recipes from a cookbook to try them and and we had to the three of us are really keen cooks we had to adjust all the recipes none of them were quite right And, and it was a delicious meal in the end but It was a way of testing the recipes, and I remember thinking, yeah, none of these are quite right, and how are we going to remember how we adjusted that unless I write it in? So, yeah, I'm pleased that my granny wrote them in, but it's funny how we've moved from, you know, two generations ago to, you know, I still have handwritten recipe cards from grandmothers to my mum probably not doing that, having a cookbook, to now, as you say, it's really tempting not to use the hundreds of cookbooks I have and just Google, you know, whatever nigella's recipe book, you know for brownies and it's of course it's there of course almost anything that's in any of those books is there it it feels a little sad to me to be stepping away from that i mean here's a question and you know i know we're talking about feasts and we'll we'll get back to the happiness of it but i have a feeling that he's this this is the first time he's cooked it because he's a widow
0: yeah i think that too i think that and that sort of the scrawled note saying cranberry sauce big freezer I wonder who's writing that sin, whether it's his writing to remind him or whether it's someone else who's sort of been doing the Christmas preparations and the knowledge that they might not be there at Christmas. I don't know.
1: Because you, I mean, you or I would not write cranberry sauce big freezer in a note to ourselves because we'd know where we kept the cranberry sauce. Yeah, it does feel like that's a preparation or perhaps she's someone who struggled with her memory or tried to remember where she put, you know, if you're like some people in my family and have several freezers, you might want to remind yourself where you keep it. And when I saw that, I thought, ooh, you can freeze cranberry sauce.
0: <laughs> I would check that. I'm not sure we should rely on Heather's story.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, we might find out. I'll, I'll be tweeting at Christmas more on Christmas morning saying, it turns out you can't freeze cranberry sauce. <laughs> it should so, be okay, though, shouldn't it? Because it's just fruit and sugar. I guess so. And it's funny, I was reminded that um, someone was telling me recently that yeah, in some, you get cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving too, and in some families, the mother makes I make a cranberry sauce with orange peel, but I don't put nuts in mine, which I think is critical. But some families, they do make, you know, a nutty version. And, and then, of course, there's a tin of, you can buy a tin of cranberry sauce in America. It's like, almost like gelatin. You know, it comes out in a roll, you just slide it out. And some kids, that's the version that they prefer, is the one from the tin which must be heartbreaking as a mum. So I don't give my kids that option. <laughs> you know. get jars of it here. Yeah, it's a different, it's a more chunky there. It's definitely like a gelatin. It's like a jello, what I think of as a jello. So I once had a
0: friend who made me as a Christmas present, a jar of cranberry sauce and it had so much port in it. It was delicious, but it was definitely on the bougie side of cranberry sauces.
1: Mm, there you are. That might be your Christmas present this year, Claire. Watch out. I love the idea of going to the fancy supermarket, getting helped to buy things that he'd never noticed before. And I love that sweetness of finding a, a treat in your bag. I would definitely be tempted to do that myself. You know, if you've got some person who is a grandpa, I don't want to say elderly because we don't know, but is a grandpa and is obviously slightly lost as to where to find pine nuts and carved meats and steam pudding tubs you know I would definitely want to slide a treat in for them and especially because we get the sense that he is frail because the idea of waiting for stronger hands than his to open it I love that I mean already I know I'm you know I'm not elderly but I already you know leave sort of heavy tasks to my strapping children thinking oh I'm not gonna lift that thing of ice I'll just let you know, my oldest do it. And I love that idea of timing. Timing, you know, big feasts are always about timing, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Spreadsheets. <laughs> spreadsheet. This is where Claire and I diverge, everybody. Claire has a spreadsheet and I don't. <laughs> And probably her Christmas dinner comes on, so they go all in one spot, all in a one And mine's like, Well, here's your pigs and blankets. It'll be another half an hour for the roasties. I shall share my spreadsheet with you. If you could just come over and manage the system <laughs> as
0: well, that would be great. Shall we keep going? Yeah. Shall I read the next section? Yeah. The preparation had started months before, not only because he wanted to get everything perfect. But because his days suddenly seemed long and bewilderingly open. And he knew that if he made too much sage and onion stuffing, there were three young boys across the road whose mother was having to work two jobs after so many cutbacks, and so couldn't have much time to cook. A hungry mouth wouldn't judge an imperfect Yorkshire pudding. Contentious, he knew, but there would be a riot if they weren't made. And so over the autumn, he and the overworked mother had become friends, as you will with someone who brings roasted veg soup and a mushroom tart for the vegetarians at the table, and then, just the week before, a whole three-tier fruit cake. Even he had to admit that he'd become quite the baker. The gravy was sieved, the plates were warming, the crackers were delicately placed. No one would be forced to wear the silly crowns. By the time they started to arrive, the turkey was resting on the side. The carrots glazed with honey and put in the top oven to warm. The steam puddings tied with string and set on the back burners of the hob. They kissed him on his hot cheeks and squeezed his hands, but he busied himself, moving as quickly as his old bones would let him, and hushed them towards the table not wanting any praise or too many kind words, because this was a gift to him. It was all he could possibly want. There was laughter from the dining room. As he checked the potatoes, a good crisp and fluffy inside, he heard at least one cracker go, the crinkle of a paper hat. He brought the starters to table, for Evie, who was so much bigger than when he'd seen her last, Neat little balls of melon and a little raspberry coolie, Though now he looked at her, he realised she wasn't a baby any more. She was almost four. As she popped the melon neatly into her mouth, he remembered the champagne. James was dispatched to the fridge and Amelia brought the dusty flutes, a gift for his wedding, down from the chop shelf of the sideboard. As her father made a show of ostentatious pouring, Evie reached over to her cousin's plate, thumbed aside the prosciutto and took the fattest and most succulent half fig in her hand. Her grandfather watched as she took a moment to stare at the world of soft crimson seeds inside, such infinite possibility, and sunk her teeth straight
1: in. Oh, I just love this story it feels like a hug really you know just desperate that halfway through for nothing bad to happen to any of them because you just want it to be okay for him and I love that idea of him befriending the neighbor across the road. Yeah I was just going to come to that and just
0: say how it really feels like a mutual support network the two
1: of them helping each other through. And, you know, the one will be thinking, oh, that poor woman, she must be, and she'll be thinking, that poor man, he's on his own. But actually, the reality is they probably need the company as much as the other. And it gives you that idea that the gift is giving. And so often we think, oh, we're doing someone a good turn. but And we are, but often... The person we're doing a good turn to is ourselves by being able to give of ourselves, if that, if that makes sense. It makes me think of that Don Patterson line of, um, see how the true gift never really leaves the giver. You know, I went looking for that poem thinking it would suit. With Heather's story, but actually it's about it's called Waking with Russell, it's about waking with your son, so it's not, not quite right but I had that idea that, you know, giving is the gift here, and that feels like very much certainly what's happening with the neighbours but also what's happening with his family Yeah,
0: and, and we get that so beautifully expressed, you know, not want any praise or too many kind words because this was a gift to him You can get over emotional at this time of year. Um, But, you know, I do sometimes find myself sitting around the Christmas table just thinking, "Ah, we're all here and we've got food on the table and everyone's okay." Breathe, (laughs) you know, especially at the end of a hectic couple of months or a hectic, you know, term at school where you've been running around, you've maybe not even noticed, had the time to notice at each mealtime who's sitting around the table, but um, there's something about the Christmas holidays and the days before and the days after that feel like they give you a little bit of breathing space just to go,
1: ah, here we are. I also think as an older person, you know, we, we both have busy family lives. And it is a gift, if I'm perfectly honest, to go to someone else's house for Christmas dinner. Although when my kids were young, I remember going, you know, to their grannies for dinner and and being grateful that I didn't have to cook it because was, you know, like my kids were choristers and so they were singing, you know all of christmas eve several services and then midnight mass and then christmas morning and they were absolutely exhausted and i was too because i had to wait you know until two in the morning till they got in and then got back up at seven or whatever so by the time christmas dinner time came around i was just on my knees and had done all of you know christmas brunch and made sure they were fed and all the other things that come along with christmas so i was just so thrilled that someone did christmas for the meal for us but I do know that you know at that time when families their kids start to grow up most people want to have Christmas in their own house and so it is a gift in many ways for more than one family to come to an older person's house so it's a sort of a mutual gift in many ways to sort of say okay we'll pack everybody up and put them in a car and bring them to you so I think he recognizes that but I also thought what I recognize is something that you sometimes say to me or you know when you're when you're feeling wobbly or not that you always feel wobbly I do too but when you're feeling wobbly, you don't want people to be nice to you because oh, it just death. makes it worse. You know? <laughs> don't, be <nice laughs> don't be so nice to me, <laughs> you know. Let's when just you're, get if, on with it. <laughs> yeah. If you're feeling tearful, it's like, please stop being nice. Just let me, you know, do something else. And I wondered if that was um, part of it, just busying yourself because actually you can't. It's too difficult to take that kindness in a when you're feeling emotional about something else.
0: And I think there's little freezes and things in the in the second part in particular that feel like they're coming from the person who we feel is missing so that he checked the potatoes and those words are good, crisp and fluffy inside. That sounds like it's something he's heard before. Yeah, definitely. That he's
1: bringing. Plates warming, you know, all of those sorts of things. It just, yeah, it feels like he's replicating something. He certainly is replicating something. Sieving the gravy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah a good gravy is hard to do as we know I think in some ways it's the hardest part of Christmas and I love that I, that little tiny you know um, paragraph about there's laughter from the dining room and um, he hears a cracker go the crinkle of a paper hat it is that joy in those sort of three sentences of being in another room and hearing your family laugh or be happy and that somehow you had something well in many cases in my house on an ordinary day I have nothing to do with it but there's nothing more lovely to me than Sitting in my bed and hearing my kids laugh with each other downstairs. It's like, you know, you've done something right that they're able to be, you're not having to provide the joy, as it were, which I love. You know, I, I really recognize that. It sounds miserable, but it isn't really. It's not that you don't want to be part, it's just knowing that they're happy when you're not having to be there, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, when you're not orchestrating the happiness.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think as a parent, you're often trying to make sure everybody's okay all the time. And it's lovely to step back and watch them or hear them in this case, be okay. And then that feels like confirmation. That little tiny paragraph feels like confirmation that his setup worked, that all is going to plan. And then Evie does the unexpected of eating the fig, which is, you know, feels like it's a kind of metaphor for change, that things move on and that they're okay, you know, so, all this effort to make sure he doesn't give her figs and gives her melon, makes a raspberry coolie. I literally tear up at that idea of an older person making a raspberry coolie for one granddaughter because she doesn't like figs. And I think that's just, just delightful. And then she eats the figs because you know what? We can all change. And for me, that means he can too, you know, that he can move into finding a new way through this.
0: You know, that sort of introduction to that paragraph where we we hear the. Evie's much bigger than he'd seen her last and it almost paves the way gently for her to change. So reflecting back on him, it can be a gentle, slow process. He doesn't need to wake up tomorrow and suddenly be springing out of bed and it's okay still to miss whoever's not there but there is hope that he'll find a way through. It's a really
1: hopeful story, this one for me. It is. It is. And it's funny because, you know, you think about your own family. I don't know if any of your children have um, taken a dislike to something and then let it go. So, you know, I do have one who hated figs, and now will eat them. You know, but I, I think partly based on look, the look of them, you know, I mean, I think they're a beautiful thing. But if you think of them and try and think of them as not being a beautiful thing, cutting them open, Quite, they can be quite scary looking on the inside and they, if you don't get it, if you get a bad fig, meaning a dry one, it's not very nice. But then the idea that children do, you know, I worry that we get in these patterns of I don't eat peas and I don't eat tomatoes and, I don't, and actually, you know, the reality is that the trick in life is so often to go back at things. And they do say
0: with kids, they have to try, try something 20 times before you can be sure they actually don't like it. Certainly, that was the um, the chat in our house when my children were little and they used to go, oh, I don't like broccoli. i ah, oh, you've only tried it 14 times. You've got six more to go
1: before you can tell me you don't like it. <laughs> and, we're, and and were you just making that up so the next yeah, time totally. it would be like 12? Oops, I mean 17 times. Until it was became a war of
0: attrition and now they... I'll eat broccoli, even though the one, the middle one in particular cannot bear it. But he's like, oh, it's just easier. just to eat. And he did say, I remember him saying to me when he was about five, Mum, you do know that I don't like this, but I only eat it to make you happy.
1: But that's good enough for me. <laughs> it's so funny, though. You'll remember my eldest really doesn't love. I mean, he 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 didn't mind the taste of mash, mashed potatoes, but something about it makes him be sick. And I mean, he is sick if he eats it. And I remember but you should you, say
0: he is not a fussy child. He would eat no. anything. I mean, he, apart from mashed potatoes,
1: he would eat. He, at, at the age of two, he'd eat anchovies, bocorones, you know, um, chorizo, olives. He would eat anything. But and he and he would eat the mash. But then he would be sick. There was something about it that made him sick. And I remember you making the most beautiful fish pie for our family, like coming over with the kids for dinner. And I just didn't say anything. And he was he's such a good boy or he certainly was when he was five or whatever. He still is now if you're listening out there. But he, um, and he ate it and then he was sick. (laughs) I felt terrible for not being like, was sort of quietly trying to scrape it off so he wouldn't be sick, but he was. But poor boy has gone to university and guess what they serve, you know, almost every other day in halls.
0: Mashed potato. potato. And he he still
1: can't eat it. Well, he doesn't, he isn't sick on it anymore, but he just sort of three or four bites in and just feels like he's going to be sick. So he tries not to eat. I mean, and he's a big sporty boy, so he needs the carbs. So he just fills up on bread instead. But I I think of some, you know, that's one that just wouldn't go. And and with the best will in the world, he's tried to overcome it because it's, you know, it's in every shepherd's pie and <laughs> every fish pie in Britain. And it's the one thing he won't eat. So I'm pleased to see that in the story, we've got the opportunity to change our minds about things and that it end that we leave it there because it could go either way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, Heather, for that beautiful story to end your residency. We've really, really enjoyed reading your pieces of work every month. And um, if I'm allowed to have
1: a favourite, I think this is my favourite. Yeah, me too. It feels, as I say, it feels like a big hug to round off the year. So I almost wanted to keep writing him so we hear what he's up to in January and February. We take to him so much. So, Heather, if you do that, we want to know. We're going to do something that we do in almost all of our open book sessions, and I think we did on the podcast last month, which is to read ourselves out of the room, is what we say, and we're going to read a poem that is written by our, a group poem that was written by our open creative writing group, which you're all welcome to join, Um, you can sign up via our newsletter or on the website, and it's online. And this is a group, a poem that everybody contributed to that day um, on the theme of celebration, and it was part of the Book Week Scotland's celebration book, which you can find a PDF of online in the Book Week Scotland and the Scottish Book Trust website. It's called Revelry. Don't just invite your friends. Ask the person who weighs on your heart. Request sunshine and an absence of wasps. The day opens nervously. The first thing to do is to decide what to make. Make a list. Gather the wee ones and bribe with secrets. Remember matches. The barbecue won't light. Panic, people arrive. Revelry is compulsory. Banquet on the here and now. The whole extravaganza begins over and over and over again. It's an adventure. Keep singing.
0: What a lovely way to end our open book year. And thank you to all those in our
1: open creative writing group who um, contributed to that cracking poem. I think that's all from us for today and for this year. Thanks for joining us for our podcasts and having us in your ears. See you in 2022.